Well, church family, this is a time where we come together and, and, uh, and hear from um, the Lord um, through a text that is so precious to the church and always has been, um, I mean the Bible. Um, but we're going to look at a portion of John chapter 3. This is going to bring uh, this series on the new birth to a conclusion. John chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 21. So if you'll take your Bibles and open there, John chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. And I'm actually going to begin in verse 16, which we looked at last week, the most quoted verse in all of the Bible. And then I'll pray, and then we'll look at it together. This is what Jesus said. This is the word of the Lord. Let me ask you if you'd go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of God's word. For God so loved the world. Let me reread that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Father, I pray that in these moments that we have, that you would allow this, these words to become like living water and to refresh our souls. Lord, we know that you have determined your word to be the primary way in which we grow and know you and, and revel in the grace that you have provided in your son. And so I pray that you would take this word and ignite it into fire in our souls and feed us um, deep down not just our minds, but our souls, our affections, our whole being. So we offer you this time and just ask, Lord, please, in the name of Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak. In Jesus' name, amen. You can take your seats. I want to begin by, um, by describing uh, two different portraits of the Christian life, two different pictures. And both of these pictures come out of two things. One is my own personal experience as a Christian. And also, second thing is the Christian family and friends that I have. Um, these two pictures come to, to mind. One picture is that of a, what we might call a defeated Christian. And by defeated, I do not mean a Christian who is living in a hard-hearted, unrepentant state of gross sin. Um, that is not a defeated Christian. That's a defiant Christian, if a Christian at all. What I mean by a defeated Christian is someone who genuinely desires and tries to read the Bible every day. A Christian who um, tries to come to church. Uh, a Christian who tries to reach his or her neighbors. But always feeling like they're behind the eight ball. Always feeling like, they never measure up, or they're not doing enough, or that they should be doing more. That is, they feel like failures. Um, the way it could be described in 
how I think is living out the Christian life, trying and struggling and paddling and, and treading water as fast as you can to just keep your lips above the water. But no matter how hard you try, it seems like you're never good enough. That is what I would call a, a defeated Christian. Always in a place of feeling like they're not enough. And I know that there are Christians who feel that way. In fact, I'd be willing to say if we stopped right now and asked, if I asked you, how do you feel you're doing as a Christian? Most of you would probably say, I'm probably operating as a defeated Christian. Um, that is, you operate and your mar- life is more marked by um, feelings of failure than by, by feelings of triumph. That's one picture. Another picture of a Christian is different, and that is, I have met people who exude a kind of confident joy in the Christian life. Somehow they're able to rejoice even in their weaknesses, and even when they stumble and fall, there's a, a sense of quiet rest about them that still knows that God loves them. That is, it, you might call them a Christian who is able to live out their joy in a kind of peaceful and quiet rest. Very different picture. They operate not from a position of defeat, but a position of triumph or victory, a sense of of joy in who they are in the Lord. Two very different pictures, and I have been in both places. I have been the guy who's paddled and paddled and tried to keep my lips above the water, always feeling like I haven't done enough. And I've also felt at times, and working towards uh, believing, that I am a Christian, and therefore a son of God, and therefore always in a position of triumph and victory. Now the question is, how does a person, or let's say it's you, who find yourself constantly feeling defeated in the Christian life, how do you move from a place of, of defeat and feeling like you're not enough or you need to do more but you're not to a place where, is that, that there, where there's that confident, joyful rest in the Lord? I mean, that's what Jesus called us to, right? He, he said, come to me. Those of you who are soul-burdened, you know, tired of the yoke, and I'll give you rest. That's what he promises. And unless we think he's lying or he's exaggerating the truth, then it's a very real possibility to live in a joyful rest, not in a position of defeat. The question is, how do you move from one to the other? Now, I'll tell you the way not to make that transition. It's not simply to paddle harder in the water. Maybe if I go faster, try harder, I will rise above the lip level in the Christian life. Nor is it some secret truth that's out there in some dark corner of the world that you have to go out and find. Nor is it something you need to invent as if there's something new that will release me from this place of of defeat. Rather, it's not something new that we need to go to that I think makes the transition in the soul of the Christian from a place of defeat to a place of triumph. And it's actually in the rediscovery of an old truth. Truth that's right before us, right before our very noses. But it's a matter of internalizing or realizing that truth deep down. Not just by way of logic, which is what most of us are used to. By the way, I think understanding precedes experience. So you need to understand it. But for God to take truth and then combust it in the soul in a way that changes within the way I would define faith, because that's what we're talking about, is, is the taking in of truth it's so that it impacts inner life and experience the soul, is the inward realization 
of the truth of God. That is to say, it is, it is the soul taking hold of something and then having the soul saturated by that divine reality. It's not just here, but it's the whole being taking this truth in. And in particular, what I believe liberates the Christian from a place of defeat to a place of triumph is the internalization, the realization of faith of what God has given to us and who we are as Christians. Or more to the point of of John 3, it's the internal realization and actual belief laying hold of the truth that we have been awakened to new life by the Holy Spirit, that we have been given this new life on the foundation of the Son, who is now our focus, all which originates because of the love of the Father who loved the world so much. And it's when the soul believes that, not here, but with the soul, that one finds themselves switched from a position of defeat to a position of of triumph. And so this morning, my, my hope and my desire is that you experience that and we make headway. I don't believe God wants us to be people who are walking around with that yoke on our back, but to find rest in Christ. So here's two more truths of new life, two more blessings of new birth that I just hope the Spirit of God will take into your soul. I, I, I realize no matter how much I describe it, you just can't describe something that happens in the heart sometimes. You're just like trying to reach at the stars, but I'm hoping that somehow you'll, you'll see it and then experience it. Two truths of, um, of this new life for the Christian that we need to be reminded of. One is in verse 18 where he says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Very important statement. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The first part of that is immensely, foundationally important to your Christian life. Where it says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. That means forgiven. It's a big part foundational part of the Christian life is recognizing and believing in your soul that in this new life that we have, that we have received the freedom of forgiveness. Now you'll notice he compares and contrasts two kinds of people in this verse. That is, there are two categories into which all people fit, and there are only two categories. There is the category of not condemned or forgiven, And there is the category of condemned already. There is no third category. There is either condemned or forgiven. Only two categories. And Jesus tells us explicitly that the only difference between those two categories of forgiven and condemned is a simple thing. Belief in the only son. That places people in one of two categories. For those who reject the Son, that is, they do not trust the merits of the fact that he died for sin and rose to give life, then they stand in a position of condemned already because the verdict has already been rendered over this world. The world in which we lived is a condemned world. That's why he says are condemned already. Anyone by nature of being born into this world, being born into the line of Adam, is born in a condemned state. So the world in which we live is condemned, according to Jesus. That's that category. 
But for those who have come to faith in the Son, they now stand in this category of not condemned or forgiven. That is the soul of the believer who actually not just knows but relies. Reliance is a heart word, in my opinion. But relies on the fact that in the death of Jesus, he reverses that so that we get life. And that in the condemnation of Jesus, we get forgiveness. That is, the iniquities of us all have been placed on him, and therefore it's done. When he said it is finished, it was done for all of his people. Not condemned. Now, what that, no, let, me, let me just say this, that for the soul who believes, oh, actually, let me keep going. For the soul that feels like I'm not good enough, I haven't met the standard, I need to do more. It's this very truth of not condemned that brings liberation and tells you that you're believing in a lie. I mean, what he's talking about here, Jesus, by saying not condemned, those who believe are not condemned, in substance is the same thing that Paul says in Romans 3, which is the just shall live by faith and faith alone, justified. It's what he celebrates in Romans chapter 8 when he says, therefore... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Which means all of us in here are freed, pardoned, completely and utterly. That's how God sees his people. Sin-free and perfect. Not behind the eight ball, but in front of it. That he doesn't see us as not measuring up. He sees us as fully measuring up because Jesus measured up on our behalf. And he met the standard that we couldn't meet. So God doesn't see us as not measuring up when we came to faith. He doesn't see us as not good enough or that we haven't made the grade. So, now here's the key. If that's how our Father sees us because of what we have believed in the Son, namely that he was condemned in our place and all sin was extinguished when God punished him instead of us, if that's how God sees you and he sees me, then why should we see ourselves as any different? See, if you see yourself as I don't measure up, you have just denied this foundational doctrine we call justification. But to see oneself as I am a full-fledged son of God or daughter of God, I am completely perfect in the eyes of my Father. I have the righteousness of Christ. And because he sees me that way, I must see me that way. And when you do, you put yourself in a position of victory and triumph, not defeat. That we don't let the broken and flawed experience of life define who we are. We don't let other people and other voices define who we are. There's only one voice that matters. And that is the voice of God that says justified, righteous, perfect. Not because you're perfect in and of yourself, but because I supplied everything that you need. And when you stand in that light, then it should produce a vital sense of joy and peace and rest because we are full-fledged members of God, God's household. Not halfway there, 
He's already declared victory over his people. And to live in that light, that should be the deepest source of sustained joy and strength in the Christian life. This truth, not condemned. What that should do to your heart is it should cause you to want to sing a new song to the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Because that's who he is. Who heals all your diseases, forgives all your iniquities, and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. That's what it should do to the heart. It's like waking up from a really bad dream. Have you ever had a bad dream that you actually thought was real? Like, every, like I have. I've had dreams that were so real and bad that scared the tar out of me. And um, one dream in particular, I'll never forget, because it had guys from this church in it, <laughs> is, uh, I, I don't know how I got there. You know, dreams, you just start somewhere. And I didn't even know where I was, but everything was fresh and everything was vivid. And two men took me and tied me up. I think it was those zip ties that the cops use. And, and uh, so they bound me up. And awkwardly enough, two guys in this church who shall remain name, 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 nameless, but they tied me up, and then they proceeded to cover me with lighter fluid. And this is no joke. But it wasn't quite lighter fluid. It was more kind of this flammable paste that you, you have in those little sterno things. And the conversations were there. They were real, and they were smiling as they did it. And I thought, they're going to light me on fire. And that's exactly what they were planning on doing. Now, I hope to God that that is not a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> But I remember at this point in the dream that I got my feet untangled and they were off doing something else, getting ready to, I don't know, light the torches. And, and, um, and I ran. And I remember them chasing me. And I felt the complete threat and the fear of being burned alive. I felt it. And I remember in my dream thinking, oh, this has got to be a dream. But I couldn't wake myself up, you know? You're just thinking, this has got to be a dream, and you try to pinch yourself, but you still don't wake up. So I concluded that this isn't a dream, this is real. So my heart's pounding, I'm afraid of being burned alive, I'm running for my life. And finally, I, I don't know if my wife kicked me or what, but I woke up, thankfully. A gift of grace, being kicked by your wife in the middle of the night. But um, I remember, in a cold sweat, I remember not only the sense of relief that this wasn't real, but I remember this sense of being overjoyed, like, oh, I'm back in the place of safety, back in my own house with my family that loves me. And it was a relief because I was in a whole new different reality than my dream or my nightmare. Now, that's, that's what new birth does is it awakens us to a completely different set of circumstances and reality. It wakes us up from the nightmare. Only the nightmare is not a myth. The nightmare of a condemned world is very real. Um, the very idea, the very idea of my own, our own, the world's own corrosive guilt and the very thought of falling into the hands of a holy God should make anyone fear. And that's where we were. But when you're brought to life, the Spirit gives you eyes to see, and you realize that the sun has paid it all. Well, now it's a whole different set of circumstances, like waking up from a bad nightmare, and you're like, not only relieved, but should be a sense of overjoyed. And that's what the truth should do. 
Now, I know some think this doctrine of justification or this idea that God declares us blameless and innocent sons and daughters of God as something that is an induction into the Christian faith, but it's not. It's a deep well to be drunk from over and over and over again to know in your mind that I am a forgiven, innocent, blameless son or daughter of God. I am a full-fledged son. To know each day and be reminded each day of this fundamental foundational truth puts one in a position of, I'm already in a position of triumph. I don't have to get myself there. It's, it's to be a daily activity of being reminded what Christ has done for you, who you are now. And that's not in a position of defeat. You see, that's the truth. And if the truth is believed and not the lie, then you operate from a total different reality, the reality of new birth, new life in the Son, and fully and completely forgiven and righteous. That's that's the foundation. That's what Jesus teaches here. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Think about that for a minute. We're here, sitting here right now, those of you who believe. You will never be in the eyes of God more righteous than you are right now. He doesn't see you as falling behind. He doesn't see you as your lips below the water. He sees you as a a beloved, precious, blameless, beautiful son or daughter. So that's one of the blessings of, of this new life is this no condemnation or justification, if you want to use Paul's words. But that leads to another, and by the way, every act or work or fruit in the Christian life, be that loving people, showing compassion, ministering, serving people, washing feet, teaching, it all should come out of this realization. You get that all? All of our working comes out of who I already have been declared to be in Christ. Freed. But it does produce fruit. It makes a difference in how you live. And that's verses 19 through 21. Where Jesus goes on from this idea of no condemnation. He says, and this is judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. Notice he's now talking about works. Their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things, again, talking about tangible doings, hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true, does, again, active word, comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. He just told us we're not condemned. That's the foundation. But now he's going on to to compare and contrast workings of life, doings, which is also a part of the Christian life. On the negative side, you have those who refuse to believe in the Son fundamentally because they love what they love. They love to do what they do. And if what they love to do will be exposed as shameful by the gospel, then they don't want to come into the light. They want to live life on their own terms. Because their deeds are evil. And they love their works. They love darkness. And they don't want to give up what they love. That's the contrast, the the negative side of those who don't come to the sun. Which, this is an insightful word of Jesus regarding why people ultimately reject Christ. It's not because of a 
philosophical difference, not because of an intellectual objection. Ultimately, the people reject Christianity. Ultimately, it is a moral inclination that's the problem. That is the problem. Why people ultimately, foundationally reject Jesus is not a problem of mind, but a problem of twisted morality. That being said, on the positive side, while those who love their works want to remain in the darkness, something different happens to the believer. As a result of new birth, as a result of a new heart, there is now a different walking. Now there's a desire to come into the light. Because the person who has genuinely been born of the Spirit on the basis of the cross now loves the light more than he does his own sin. And so he comes to the light. He loves the sun more than his own sin. He loves the light more than darkness. And one of the ways you know that you're a genuine believer is you begin to hate sin as defined by the Bible. You begin to hate what God hates. And you desire the light which God loves. And you begin to move in that direction and that direction carries with it a change in works and behavior and life. That's the last part, verse 21, when it says, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And here the works are positive. Fruits of love and, and mercy and compassion and so forth, what, which is, uh, of course, um, demonstrated in the life of Jesus. But here it is, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. It's interesting. Right here, he grounds this whole idea of works back in our union or our dependence upon God. Carried out. Someone who carries somebody else is someone who does all the labor. And here he says, these works that are produced in the Christian life on the part of those who are condemned free are carried out in God. That's on the basis of his strength and his grace at work. And right here, you see Jesus slams together two great salvation doctrines. If I may use theological terminology, it's, there's justification. And then the outworking of that is sanctification. That's who God has declared us to be. That's justification. And now who God is making us to be, that is sanctification. But the priority of justification first must never be inverted. We proceed to do what we already are. You reverse that, and you're back in a position where you feel like, I don't measure up. What have you done? You've forgotten the basis of it all, who I already am. Only then are you able to proceed in freedom and love for the Father who first loved you to do these works which also are from him. New life, we produce new works of grace in our lives on the basis of who we already are and on the basis of God working in us. Now, I was sharing with some guys this last week that talking about the motivation. Where does motivation to live out the Christian life, be a better husband or whatever, where does, where does it come from? And uh, to, to me, the gospel makes it crystal clear that our motivation is intensified and lifted and strengthened by one thing, and that is God's grace. 
not just the grace working itself out, but a focus on it. We want to do when we know what we've received. A child that knows it's loved by its parent will want to reciprocate a grace-based motivation, not a flesh-based motivation. That before you can ever run the race, one must first rest in grace. We want to run, but not rest. It sounds like a paradox. You've got to rest to run. But the one is the foundation of the other. And for me, simply to know that I'm loved of God, he has completely taken care of everything, the work is finished, and that he's going to be the one that carries me through life, and that's where my conviction lies, that's where my reliance is, that's where my dependence is, that in and of itself gives motive to the Christian heart to chase after the Lord. That's where it comes from. Not just simply telling myself, Dan, you need to do better, Dan, you need to do better. It's like getting down and looking at a little plant and shouting at it and say, grow, grow, grow. It just doesn't work that way. What fertilizes the Christian life is grace. And words that center on Christ and what God has done for us and what he will do us, the confidence that what he began, he will complete. I know for a fact that every one of you who's a true believer will do and be exactly what God has designed you to do and be. Why? Because he ultimately is in charge of your life. Now, one might say that that produces passivity in the Christian life. Oh, just depend on the Lord, depend on grace. Christians aren't going to do anything. I think it's exactly the opposite. Where a person learns to truly rest in the fact that I am a full-fledged son or daughter of God, and that his grace is going to work itself out in my life, in your life, in this church's life, then it intensifies activity. Best analogy I can think of, junior high experience. I had this neighbor who was older than me. He was in the class ahead of me, bigger, stronger than me. He was kind of like, you remember Christmas story, the Scott Barkus affair? Well, it's the guy with the yellow teeth and red hair who liked to pick on all the kids in the block. Well, this kid wasn't quite like Scott Barkus, but he was a kid who loved to get the upper hand on me. And at times pick on me. Sometimes he was my friend. Sometimes he wasn't. But I'll never forget one particular time. He took my bike with the really cool motocross handlebars that my parents had bought me for my birthday. And he wheeled it right in front of me over to his house. Knowing full well I didn't have the power to do anything about it. So there I am, like 11 years old, standing in my driveway. The big, stronger kids taking my bike in defiance and just a show that he had power over me and feel good about it. There I was, and I knew what I needed to do. I needed to walk over and get my bike, but I was afraid of being beat up. I couldn't take him down, and so there I was, crippled, because I knew I wasn't strong enough. Just about that time, my brother-in-law shows up, who's 10 years older than me, 6'2", and weighed about 230 pounds. Drove up in the driveway in a really cool, sweet Chevy Vega, the high point of the Chevy line. And he got out of the car, and he, uh, but I told Dan Overby, that's like the, the equivalent of the Ford Pinto, um, both. Anyway, he, uh, he got out of the car, and he looked at me, and he could tell that I was just standing there, and I'd lost my bike. And he looked at me and says, what's going on? I said, uh, he took my bike over there, and, and I'm afraid to go get it. And he looked at me and said, well, let's go get it together. 
Now, at that point, what happens to the heart? <laughs> Strengthened, encouraged, hopeful, and we walked over there together. Knowing that I'm in the presence of someone both who loves me and is way stronger than me and the other guy. And we went over and we retrieved my bike, and that was a sweet moment of victory. We walked it straight back, you know, looking the whole way. <laughs> That's not what Christians should do. <laughs> the point is, you know, in Christian life, we face a lot of struggles, we face a lot of adversities, some difficult roads that seem so big. But it's precisely the knowledge that God carries us and that he is for us in every situation. There is not a sliver within the being of God that is against us. And he walks by our side so that these works are carried out in God. So when that truth, just stated in words, becomes a living reality in the soul, and this divine reality begins to live and breathe that God is by my side, that intensifies our courage and strength and willingness to go because we trust that God's grace and presence and strength is with us all the time, 24-7, everywhere we go. That's why I believe that an emphasis on God's strength, on what God has done, the fact that he is for us in Christ, he's accomplished everything and he will take us there, that motivates and therein we find our strength. So these are just two truths. They're not new. This is not inventive. This is Jesus saying that we stand in a category not condemned. Brother, sister, you're freed, pardoned. You're, you're righteous in the eyes of your father. You need to see yourself that way. And revel in grace. Revel in his love and know that it's already been accomplished. And then also know he's going to take you where you need to go. And in that confidence, you will live. And you will work yourself out. And you will shine as a light in a dark place wherever you are. And God's going to get it. He's going to accomplish it. And so I, I hope that you just let that life, that's what it means to live. And let truth dominate and not the lies of the world or your own fallen experience. Let God define who you are and let him lay the foundation of your of your salvation, because he's already done it, and he's continuing to do it, and that is our confidence. And so for that reason, we can find rest in Christ and rejoice and sing to the Lord a new song. So as you come to the Lord's table this morning, that's, this is the time to remember, okay, he did it all. He paid for all my sin, and he has conferred upon me his righteousness. And if that's a truth that's out here for you and it hasn't been taken in here, then this morning as you come, if you're a believer, take the bread, take the cup, and say, Lord, will you just bring this truth that I know with my head into my heart and let it awaken new joy, that I've woken up from a nightmare and I'm in a new place, and in that light, I can live. We're going to have our three of our small group leaders uh, um, break bread and, and serve it to you. They're kind of the backbone of what makes this church work. And so I'm going to pray, and as I do, if you small group leaders could come um, forward. And then um, uh, if there are elders here, I'm going to take my position back here. And if Dan will be over here, and we're just gathering back there so that if anybody needs prayer for anything, uh, difficulty, praying for God's grace, then we'll be there for you to be uh, prayed for. So let me pray. Father, I just thank you so much for the liberating truths of your gospel that 
ultimately the great laborer in salvation. It's you. You're the one who served, washed feet, and went to the cross and died for our sin. You're the one who imparts life, awakens life, and that will take us home because you are the master workman of our salvation, and in you we trust. I pray that this time of partaking of bread and cup, a reminder of the cross where it all happened, I pray that you would communicate to us in a deep and powerful and spiritual way. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Come as you